Welcome to 2020 Vision, a podcast about politics, primaries, which are the same thing. Everyone needs to take a break sometimes, even us. And uh, there were a lot of things over the winter that I'd have loved to talk about on this show, but, you know, the world keeps moving. Uh, and we're getting real close to some primaries, the Iowa caucuses next week. So get ready for that. But this week, I'm your host, Ari Tusi, and... I'm Miliana Boucher. And today we have a very special guest with us, Cameron Kaufman, who is running for the 73rd District of the New York State Assembly. Cameron, real quick, just give us your elevator pitch. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you guys for having me on. As a college radio host, radio host myself, it really is an honor to be back on campus doing an interview and being in your seats just as recently as a year ago. Um, I'm really excited, and I know that it, it's really it's a fun thing to do in college, and it's really an amazing way to engage with politics and media. Um, To your question about the elevator pitch, I'll just say right now in the 73rd Assembly District, we have a part-time representation, part-time representative who is running for district attorney who works another job, and we have urgent issues like climate change, a retail vacancy crisis, um, congestion pricing about to go into effect, overdevelopment, and we need someone who wants to serve full-time, someone who really loves this neighborhood and really wants to listen to be present in the community as much as possible, and that's why I'm running for New York State Assembly, and that's why I want to make the 73rd District a better place. Now, uh, as you said uh, to the issue of uh, the incumbent, uh, Dan Court, um, he's been in office since 2011. And as far as I could tell from my research, uh, there's no one else running in the primary but you. Is that is that correct? So that is correct. And what's even more interesting is that there has not been a primary election in this district since 2002. So before I even entered kindergarten was the last time there was a primary in the 73rd district. And, you know, it is a Democrat-dominated district, so we have not had a competitive election in 73 um, in almost 20 years. Right. Just to just to give some weight to that statement, uh, the last election was won by the Democrat, who is the incumbent, 76 percent of the vote. Um, it really is dominated. There's really no way to have a chance if you're running with an R next to your name. Yeah, there's 50,000 registered Democrats and you know, it, it was actually a Republican district before, back in the 90s and early 2000s. But I think in general, the, the thing that we're now seeing across our state assembly, our state senate, and, and even in, on the larger scale in congressional races, that primary challenges are really healthy for our democracy. And we obviously don't want to divert Democratic resources away in competitive seats when, you know, it could be spent against a Republican. That's one thing. But you have a lot of these districts now, especially in New York is a good example, where the competitive election is the primary. And this sort of aversion to primaries, I think, is is changing in our society, whether seeing AOC do it against the, the leader of Queens, the entire Queens Democratic establishment. Um, you see it now much more frequently, and I think it's less frowned upon because establishment politics are a thing of the past. So you compared yourself to AOC. Would you ever see yourself running for federal politics or national politics in the future? What I'm comparing, I'm saying that I'm part of a young generation of leadership trying to to bring change. Uh, Right now, I'm really concerned with my community and trying to help out as much as I can and to serve. And I think the way to do that is on this local level. You know, it's a district of 125,000 people, so it's large, but it still feels like a very tight-knit community, um, like a family. And knowing that I can be around the district, meet as many voters as possible, I like that sort of representation, being part of a place where I can be at every event, where I can be around, and I can say that I really know the stakeholders in the community. Now, uh, you mentioned your age. Uh, You're 23, correct? 22. 22. I'm 22. I just turned 22. So how are you going to deal with the 
the perception, especially from uh, establishment politics, of people treating you like a kid or treating you inex- like you're inexperienced. Uh, how do you intend to deal with that? Well, I, I think that's a, a really important question. And I think the, the big response is that, yes, I'm 22, but I've lived in this district for 22 years, for my entire life. So that means 22 years of being present, of listening, and being a part of something. And I think that when people try and weigh that, you know, 22 years of being a member, an active member of the community versus nine years of serving in a legislative body, only trying to further one's own career ambitions to run for a higher office, I think that that 22 years stacks up better um, than that sort of legislative service. And in establishment politics, there's just this natural tendency to say, oh, you know, the incumbent has been doing it for a while. They know how the ropes work. But I think if you look at Albany, you say, I don't think anyone is associated with the way that Albany's been going in the past 10 years. It should be doing that as a positive. If you look at it, we've had over 30 representatives or lawmakers indicted or convicted in the past 10 years. New York leads the nation in that. That's not something that New York should be too proud of. Uh, We lead the nation in many other better statistics. But anyone who wants to tie themselves to that, I'm more than willing to say that, you know, it's better that I've spent zero days in that legislature. Definitely. What are other ways in which you would say that you would argue that you are more qualified than the incumbent for the position. Yeah, so I'd say beyond the listening, I think also I'm bringing a real focus to ethics and accountability in government. You know, when we look at the word progressive, the progressive movement started as a way for government to actually serve the people. You look at what was going on in the early 20th century. You'd had the Gilded Age where so many people were just not being represented and helped out by their government. And so passing things like child labor laws, sort of workplace protections, um, and also beginning to work towards gender equality, all these things that the government had never been doing before. Progressive was about making the government actually work for the people again. And I think that's what I'm really focusing on. And when I'm going around talking about policies that will ensure that when our tax dollars are spent on our transit system, that our transit system actually gets better. Uh, Because so many people rely on it to get to work every single day. Or the fact that we have so many small businesses in our community that are unsupported, that are really not surviving right now with the current environment, I'm trying to make government work better for them. So I think that the idea that I'm coming, trying to really bring that to progressivism, that government functions and works well again, uh, is something that really is, is a high qualification and something that I can say my opponent's not doing. Definitely. So you talked a lot about the policy issues that you want to bring to the community and spending tax dollars. And looking at your website, you definitely do have a lot of policy stances. Which would you say is closest to your heart or most important to you? Well, that's that's a tough question. There's a lot that I'm really passionate about. The one that I, I'll focus on is the retail vacancy crisis. So in our neighborhood, it's over one in eight storefronts. I think it's about 13 percent or so. Now, it varies throughout the city. There's actually a couple places where it's up to like 16, 17%. I don't know what it's like down here by Washington Square Park, but I imagine it's, it's, it's similarly around there. And this is up from what it used to be, about 7, 8%. So we're seeing a doubling, really, in a lot of places. And I lived in New York City my whole life. I love it because I love the sense of community. I love the fact that I'm not going to a Target, Walmart, big box center, that I'm going to a small business, a local mom-and-pop shop, that is, you know, not just selling goods, but really is, is selling community as well. That these are people that you interact with that you know, and they're closing down. The only new thing that's opened up in my neighborhood in, in like the past year is a Target, uh, maybe a Walgreens a couple years ago. But in the meantime, all these small business stores, the store that I buy my stationery, the store that, you know, I used to go to the toy store as a kid, they're all closing down. And, you know, you can say what you want about Amazon and e-commerce changing things. 
But the fact remains that every single small business owner that I've talked to says that the city has not, and the state have not done a good job of making it easy to to have a business open. And the laws are actually like they're they're rigged in a way that if you're a large corporation, you can get around things, and it's pretty easy. If you're Amazon, the internet sales tax was barely enforced until this year. If you're a small business who has a retail presence, which is more than just a business, it's a part of our community. I'm a big Jane Jacobs fan, and you know she always talks about how healthy sidewalks mean healthy communities. And I want to bring our healthy sidewalks back, and I want to bring the business back. We can go into some of those policy planks if you want to, but I have a whole plan to alleviate the retail vacancy crisis. So what kind of legislation would you support or try to implement that would help close the gap between big businesses and uh, mom and pop shops? Yeah, so they're working on the city council to do a small business and job survival act, and I would do want to do something similar on the statewide level. So we have something called the commercial rent tax, which is a 4% tax you pay on your commercial rent. And that doesn't really make sense. In, you know, in New York, you could be paying $300,000 a year in rent, and then all of a sudden paying 4% on that, you're paying $12,000, which is a ton of money just on your rent. Nothing to do with your income, nothing to do with your operating revenue. You have the commercial rent tax, you have property taxes, which are spiraling out of control due to the way that we assess them, and the state can fix that. Um, but as I said, it's not just that. It's about making the playing field more level. So we have to work on really closing the loopholes of the internet sales tax to make sure that when you're buying something on Amazon versus buying something in a store, you're not paying more on sales tax buying it in a store. That doesn't really make sense. Um, there are some issues with the landlords and the way that everything's going with how high rent is. But, and, and that's what I came into this problem because I noticed it. I live in this community and I've walked out of my house enough times to see for rent signs to say something's going on here. And I had heard people saying maybe we need commercial rent control. Maybe we need some sort of vacancy tax. And I, you know, I said, maybe that sounds like a good idea. But I talked to some businesses and then I read through city planning, put out a report, and rent has gone down, for example, on 3rd Avenue, 40% in the last two years, yet vacancies have gone up. So conventional wisdom says, you know, if, if you needed commercial rent control, like if you put that in, shouldn't that alleviate it? That's not the case. That clearly is not working. So we have a problem in that the, the deck kind of is stacked against small businesses. So working on the tax climate, working to incubate better retail technologies to make it easier for them, and then also working to make sure that the Amazons who use our streets for free to basically set up delivery hubs. I don't know if you guys notice it down here, but you know they'll just park out on the street and set up basically a box distribution center. They're not paying any sort of rent to the city or the state for that. Uh, what I would advocate for, quite frankly, is you have these vacant storefronts. Amazon could turn them into package processing centers. And at the very least, there's activity going on, and it's also not clogging up our streets. Our sidewalks or our highways, they should be clean and they should be for pedestrians. I had a question about your thoughts on Dan Court. How do you think he's going to do in the DA race? It's odd. So it's a, it's an election that's regulated by the state, not by the city, meaning, you know, in, in New York City, we have a really, really good, I'm, I'm going to give a lot of praise to actually ethics and government on the citywide level. Our system for campaign finance is strong. We have really capped the donations and we have an eight to one public match. So that means if you get a $250 donation, you're getting $2,000 from the public. That's amazing. And that actually means that you can get big money out of politics. However, on the statewide level, the, the maximums are higher. For the DA's race, it's the highest. It's $50,000. So if you look at the incumbent's recent campaign finance filing, he received, for example, a $35,000 contribution, multiple $25,000 contributions. Uh, contributions, you know, that's more than 10 times the max for a presidential 
candidate. That makes zero sense whatsoever for a DA, a position that you really would not want anybody to be peddling influence for. Um, to your broader question, what do I think about his chances? It's a very crowded field. Um, I do think, though, that people are beginning to wake up to the fact that there have been some serious wrongdoings right now in the DA's office. Well, Cyrus Vance has to go. And that, and that's why, by the way, there's, there's I think, now four or five declared challengers already. It's unclear if, if Cyrus Vance will be running for re-election or not. But I'm excited to see this strong primary. And as to my earlier point, primaries are healthy for democracy, to have so many different people all campaigning um, and trying to bring criminal justice ideas to the forefront because you saw it right now. New York has passed criminal justice reform, but you can only get so much when you pass it on a statewide level, on a statewide law. You do need your prosecutors to actually behave the way that the law tells them to. So that's the next step. And that's what we're seeing going on right now at the race for who's going to succeed Cyrus Vance or if Cyrus Vance is going to to serve another term at Hogan Place. What would you say was your experience in college or a class you took or a club you were in or something like that that you think best uh, prepared you for holding public office? That's a great question. I would say, so I took a fascinating class on city governments, local organizing, local politics taught by John DeStefano. He was the mayor of New Haven for about 22 years. Um, he also ran for, I think it was Senate of Connecticut, and lost to Lieberman, I believe it was. But whatever the case, he taught a class. It was a seminar I took my senior year and really was about understanding all the different stakeholders in the local community, You know, going around to New Haven's housing advocates, going around to the Office of City Planning and talking about their transportation planning there. You know, Going to former sites, New Haven was ground zero um, for what happened in urban renewal in the 1960s. And the federal government gave more money per capita to, any, to New Haven than any other city. And to be able to see kind of when you have this sort of unchecked gentrification is what tried to go on in New Haven, really learning all the different social fabrics in a city was, was so helpful. I'll also say, interestingly enough, in that class was the son of a very important public figure, as a mayor of this city, Dante de Blasio, was in my class. And so talking about some interesting things, whether talking about charter schools, whether talking about housing policy, whether talking about criminal justice policy with the mayor of my city's son um, was pretty interesting. Well, they do say the most valuable part of college is the connections. <laughs> That's great because, you know, Yale, politicians go there, <laughs> NYU, Disney stars go here. So <laughs> the same connections, definitely, for a politics <laughs> career. Um, now, we're, we're uh, starting to run out of time. There is someone else who needs to use the studio after us. Um, is there any just you know, anything else you would like to add that you uh, think we haven't covered? Yeah, I mean, I just want to make this this final point that right now around this country, we're seeing young people finally wake up. You know, we're the generation that's grown up with climate change being something that we learn about since day one, really understanding that the planet is at stake. We've grown up with mass shootings in our schools being something that we're almost immune to and that like, it's not a surprise anymore. And that's crazy that we've grown up in this generation. And you know, we have this perspective, and that perspective is yet to be kind of put forth in state houses, in the federal government as well. Gen Z has not got its representation yet. And as Gen Z does begin to run for offices, it does begin to try and serve and to make a difference. You know, my goal at the very least is that I want when people to think about Gen Z running, young people running, that we're running to make the government clean and ethical again, and that you have so many broken systems in state houses, in the federal government as well. Um, whether it's bad campaign finance, whether it's you know bad unethical actions by lawmakers who get convicted and indicted all the time, 
you know, we want a new generation of leadership that actually wants to come and wants to serve and wants government to be clean again. Something that when you poll people, do you approve of the job that your government's doing? Do you think that the government has your best interest at heart? I want the answer to be yes again. And I think that that's our generation's job. And because fixing things like climate change, fixing things like the gun violence epidemic, that's how we're going to do it. Um, but also just back to the basics of what does our democracy really stand for? How should clean representative government look? All right. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. And um, we'll be back next week with normal content. It's going to start It's gonna start going with the uh, primaries. Uh, but I'm Ileana Boucher. And I'm Arya Tusi. And this has been 2020 Vision. You've been listening to New York University Radio, streaming worldwide at WNYU.org. Up next is Line to Line, so stay tuned if you want to hear some sports talk before the Super Bowl.